Life support is nominal. The oxygen danger indicator level is yellow. Please remember that this is a non-smoking pirate ship. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to GameIndustry.com's The Gin Lounge. I'm John Breeden, your host for this episode of this very special show. And today we are going to be talking to Chris Melisinos. He is the curator of the Smithsonian American Art Museum and has just finished working on an amazing exhibit with art and video games. So I know that a lot of people are going to be trying to get down there. Uh, Chris, welcome to the lounge today. Thank you for taking the time to uh, stop by. Hey, John, thanks for having me on the program. (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 very cool. We've been hearing about this uh, for a long time now, and I think this this particular event, more than almost anything else in the last uh, you know few years anyway, has really elevated the uh, video games into the the consciousness of the quote unquote mainstream public. So you know, k- kudos to you uh, for putting all this together. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks very much for the the fine compliment. I do appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, well, usually when we do these uh, shows about news things going on, it's usually like people in California trying to label, uh, you know, games with cigarettes or something. So here we have games in an art museum. It's very cool. But you have an interesting background, Chris. You uh, didn't come to the museum from the museum side. You've actually been in gaming for a really long time. So why don't we briefly uh, let people know what your really interesting (laughs) background is? So, you know... I am uh, I'm one of these people that was born of a generation that I call the bit baby generation, right? So we were the kids that grew up in the 1970s. You know, I, I was born actually in 1970, and so I remember getting Pong. I remember when the Atari VCS, you know, finally came into the house. And, uh, you know, in that generation, we were the first ones to really appropriate computer technology and, and video games into everyday life. You know, they didn't exist in my parents' era. They existed in mine. And I never stopped playing ever since. So, you know, I started programming when I was nine years old. I wrote my first game by the time I was 12 on my Commodore VIC-20, which had a whopping mm-hmm. five kilobytes of RAM in it, which is awesome. Um, and it actually still sits right here in my home office. Um, and uh, I did everything from running, like, again, programming games and, and learning to program games uh, as a hobbyist. Uh, but I used to run the Atari and Sega forums at AOL during the early 1990s. And then uh, I made my way over to Sun Microsystems. And uh, I eventually became the chief gaming officer for Sun Microsystems, where I was developing, along with the team, technologies uh, built around Java for mobile game development, browser-based game development, desktop game development, server-side, you know, everything from individual servers to massively multiplayer game servers. And through all of that, I've also been a huge collector of games and game systems. So I have about 43 consoles in my my personal collection and, you know, they're kind of relegated to – well, they used to be relegated to the dark corners of my office or, or places where my wife didn't want them encroaching on everyone else in the house. Now most of them sit at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in this exhibition. So I'm having a little separation anxiety from <laughs> from my extended digital kids basically. But um, – <laughs> Go in at night and check on your Neo Geo, see if it's still there. <laughs> no, no, that one, fortunately, is at home. I, that one, that one didn't have to go. But anyway, so I've had a, you know, a, a very uh, long background as somebody who grew up, you know, uh, writing games and, and building games to working uh, in that industry. But along the way, you know, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet just you know an amazing array of people from the founders of the industry like uh, Ralph Baer and Nolan Bushnell um all the way to modern game creators like you know Mike Mike and Tim Schafer 
And really, you know, it was about how do we go ahead and do something that's meaningful that helps to start really uh, articulating why video games are important in society. What can we do to uh, put something together that would allow kind of the public to, you know, further understand the importance of video games? So uh, kind of led into this exhibition. Oh, absolutely. And so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that that basically means that Chris has extreme street credit. <laughs> so, definitely, definitely, definitely cool. Well, yeah, when when uh, we set the uh, the interview up, I was I was worried. Oh no, he's going to be like an art critic or something. You know? So this this is cool that you're coming at it from the gaming side. So, and it it sounds like a lot of this exhibit, um, you know, is is your baby. I mean, you've got your own personal gear running running things down there. Um, so how did how did um, how did it how did the partnership uh, come between you and 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 art and and how did the the Smithsonian American Art Museum become interested in in doing this? Well, when uh, in my last uh, bit of my tenure at Sun Microsystems, I was also the chief evangelist. And typically, what a technology evangelist is is quite simply somebody who goes out and espouses the benefits and the application possibilities of technology by and large in society and industry and these sorts of things. Um, in that role, in that capacity, I was invited to the museum for an event that they held back in 2009 called Smithsonian 2.0. And the goal was for the Smithsonian museums to engage with senior technologists, about 20 of us, were brought in to the museum to help them better understand how they could leverage technology to speak to an audience that's becoming increasingly connected. So we had three amazing days with just some amazing curators and, and wonderful museum staff to really understand the issues they have in taking physical assets and then trying to imbue them with uh, a digital presence. And it was during those uh, those few days there that I had the chance to meet some people from the Smithsonian American Art Museum, specifically a woman by the name of Georgina Goodlander. And she had done the very first alternate reality game ever done in a major museum. It was called oh, wow. Ghost of a Chance. It was run at the uh, Smithsonian American Art Museum. And, um, you know, her management and, and her boss basically said, hey, you know, we, th we think video games might be a good cross-section here. Do you know anyone? And she goes... <laughs> I happen to know someone, <laughs> and probably is local to the museum. So they brought me in. Uh, they brought me back in the museum to talk to them about video games as art, and how somebody who has grown up in this, who has, um, you know, developed uh, games for himself and and locally, and has worked in the industry. Um, what could we do? How could we best represent this? Is, is there really a story to tell? So the, the second meeting I had coming back in was supposed to be 30 minutes long with the head of the museum. It turned into a three-hour um, brainstorming session. And so I came back with a couple of ideas, and here we go. Three years later, <laughs> we have the Art of Video Games exhibition at the museum. Right, and the, and the exhibit is running um, from when to when, so people that are listening can can head on down there and, and check it out until September 30th, exactly right? right? It's from now till September 30th, and then it will travel to 10 more museums around the country through the beginning of 2016. Right, so oh if my you gosh. can't get into D.C., you know, check the, the website out and uh, see if it's coming to a venue near you. Wow, you are going to be missing your equipment yeah. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, I just realized that my <laughs> oldest child will be in college by the time it all comes back to me, and that's frightening me a little bit. Uh, oh, wow. Well, well, all for a good cause, of course, I guess. Of course. 
Now, one of the things I, you did, um, I, I think you did, I, I got the, uh, the book, uh, the book compendium that uh, shows the exhibit, and the book divided things up into uh, different eras. There's like the 8-bit era, and then, then you, you – is that kind of how – I mean, I guess just looking at um, – if you tried to look at video games as a as a whole, I mean, it would be kind of hard. So, so what you did basically is you do, you divided it up. And how did you decide to to do that and to divide that up into the the different eras? So the book is actually a direct reflection of one of the three components of the exhibition. Right, this is kind of the okay. the evolutionary. Uh, component of the exhibition. So I worked on this book with a very close friend of mine, Patrick O'Rourke, and he did all of the, the graphic layout and everything for the book, which I think he did a smashing job on. Oh, it's beautiful. We we uh, the copy here at the office. You know, we have games. It was like computer porn. I mean, everybody would just flip the pages and then drool over it. Oh, remember Worms? That was a great game. Ah. Oh, good. He'll be good. he'll be glad to hear that. So basically, what we did was look. I said, what we need to understand is that. This is supposed to be a reflection of the evolution of video games as an art form as it was as it impacted American culture. So that's not to just say that um, it is just wholly American games or American created games, but games that impacted American culture. And so we only had room to do 20 systems in the venue that we had, which is why there are some omissions. Right. Um, and so. My goal was to go ahead and pick video game systems or platforms that really um, the American public could really identify those systems as being, quote unquote, video games for the eras in which they are represented. So when you look at the first era, right, the 8-bit or the uh, the start era, and you look at the Atari VCS, and it's the VCS, kids. It's not the Atari 2600. That was later. They renamed it. So you had the VCS, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision. Yeah, there were many other game systems, the Odyssey, Odyssey 2, the uh, – what is it, the RCA Studio 2. There was you know, a whole variety of machines that came out. Um, but these systems during those eras are really what were synonymous in American culture as being video games, right? So this is why we picked them. And I broke them out into these distinct eras to show these technological groupings that marked a transitional point in art styles or art techniques for those systems, for those eras. Mm -hmm. So we've got five eras. We have start, 8-bit, bit wars, transition, and next gen. That's how we broke them up. Well, very cool. Now, uh, you know, looking at looking at the looking at the breakdown, I mean, so I understand how you picked the systems. Now, how did you decide then? Because, like you say, you only had what was it, twenty six slots in the in the venue. Twenty, uh, 20, 20 machines. Uh, yeah. How did you How did you decide? I mean, from an art perspective, because part of this is you know part of this is video games, but part of this is also art. How did you decide? Uh, for example, why was why was combat included? For example, or why was heavy rain included? You know, on on, on both ends of the spectrum. Sure. There. So what I wanted to demonstrate through the exhibition, and if you look through the book and you look at it in the, the way we're about to talk about it, you'll start to see this. Is that so? You got these twenty systems, but then you have four of these very large genres. Right? You have this action, target, adventure, and tactics. Now, people say, well, adventure, well, what do you mean? Is it point-and-click adventures? Is it JRPGs? Is it MMOs? Is it, you know, what, what kind of adventure game are you talking about? Well, it's adventure in the largest sense. I, I could actually do an exhibition in any one of those subgenres, right? Oh, easily. So, yeah, I, I would guess. That. So right. what I wanted to do is say in the adventure category, 
what you'll see is starting at the very first systems, if you trace that one thread over time, what you can basically hear are echoes of design that are constant, that per, that persist, that you can constantly almost hear, uh, or, you know, not, not literally hear, but, or, uh, but you can see the, um, these mechanics that persist over time that stay true to those genres. Um, mm-hmm. and sometimes they cross. So for example, you know, when you see Pitfall, Harry jumping for a vine in Pitfall and you see Nathan Drake jumping for a vine in Uncharted 2, you realize that there is this mechanic that was first started, that was first laid down during the era of Pitfall that persists to this day. This vocabulary, this oh. working mechanical vocabulary that exists here. What the technology lets you do is just paint a bigger picture, right? Create a bigger environment, create a, a broader adventure in which to exist. So the reason that we have these four categories and we don't have categories like fighting games or driving games or sports is because those genres really don't lend themselves very well to deeper and a wider variety of narratives. So I chose these four buckets that allow for larger narratives to be told, which is why we are left with the type of games that exist within those four genres. Which actually brings me to a question about about video games and art then is – uh, for example, if, if you were putting together an exhibit on, I don't know, impressionist painters or something, there would be certain certain things you would look for, but most of the aspects would probably be visual, and certainly visual is 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 important to video games. But is it almost sounds like when you, you're talking about the mechanics and and the effect they had on 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 the the American public at the, at their time and at their genres, it almost sounds like when you looked at what what video games are quote unquote art or you know deserve to be represented as art. Art, it looks like you you were almost looking at something beyond the visual. I mean, were you, were you taking you know the sound effects into account, the the storyline of of the show, or you know how did you say okay, this game I think is a good representation of of, of art. It had to be more than just the way it looked, especially in the eight bit mm-hmm. era, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely no. So what um, what this show attempts to do that most other art shows that include video game art. Uh, don't is we're not looking at the art within video games. We're looking at the at video games as an art medium, as the art form itself. So it is different. It's not looking at you know again these beautiful high res screenshots of a of a game and going wow let me I'll marvel at the characters in the game or the composition of the environment. I'm looking at the games holistically and saying as an art form. This is what is represented. So I'll give you a great example. You mentioned combat. Why would combat be in this? Well, it, it, it is amazing when you take a look at what developers were trying to do during that era. It's not as if that their ideas or their thoughts about games, storyline, uh, venue, avenue, these sorts of things were any less ambitious than what we see today. The problem was is that the technology could not meet their ambition. So what wound up happening is you look at a game like combat – Take a look at the artwork that sits on the box for that game, right? So what mm. they had to do was try to imbue this very abstract-looking game with the sense of where you are, the scale of the type of battle. So you'll see tanks and planes and you know guys in missile <laughs> silos and all these sorts of things on the, the box art. And back in that era, it really required uh, the player to – 
kind of bring their imagination to the gameplay to fill in that void that the hardware could not, that the technology could not. Today, we don't see that problem. Today, we can fully express a battlefield. We can fully express, you know, a very deep storyline. So what is starting to happen now is we're seeing developers and artists kind of pull themselves back and go, look, I know I can get to realism. I don't need to do that anymore. Now I'm going to start limiting myself artistically to create new experiences, to kind of twist a, a genre around, or twist a game around and flip it on its head and see what you know we can do with it. So they can be much more creative artistically because they're not limited by technology. So that's why you know we have games that lend themselves to a stronger narrative. It's about looking at the video game holistically as an art form versus just the art included in video games. Oh, well, that, that's a really good point to make. I know that, uh, I know I've heard developers, cause, cause I interview a lot of developers and I chat with them at E3 and things like that. And I've actually heard very recently, I haven't heard it too recently, but fairly recently, where there's almost a sentiment like things have almost gotten too real, you know? And it's like, it's like, uh, when they're, they're making a game and they're like, well, if they want it to be realistic, you know, the, you, you have to make sure you put rust stains on the side of a toilet, you know? And, and that's right. it's like, they almost need to step back and say, okay, let, let's see if we can, we can sort of now that we have all these, all this palette to paint on, let's, let's do something a, a little yeah, more. Yeah, well, creative, I think one of the big so. problems you have right now too is, you know, we're really pushing the envelope into the uncanny valley. You know, the uncanny valley, which, you know, is a term that, you know, maybe you've heard or listeners have heard, but it quite simply states that the closer we get to realism, the, we eventually, uh, hit a point where we start becoming repulsed by it. Yeah, it's the difference between like uh, C-3PO and uh, the guy from the uh, oh that Christmas movie, the the yes. engineer. <laughs> yeah. But the problem is that what, what happens is in still shots, games can look completely photorealistic. It's when they start to move that something breaks down. Something's not completely right, and we can't completely discern what it is, and we don't have the technological language or understanding yet to to completely account for why we feel um, ill at ease when we see certain things move um, that look more human. And so what winds up happening is you start retreating from that. If you start to um, just iconify or um, uh, de-emphasize the realism, then people can gravitate and, and more easily appropriate an avatar or something for their own use. So, you know, I think that's what's happening with artists right now is they get to a certain point where, you know, Heavy Rain really pushed it really far. They got really good, but still, sometimes when you see it move, it, for some reason, it kind of breaks down in your mind a little bit. Um, the good thing about a game like Heavy Rain, though, is because the storyline is so engaging, it really helps force that suspension of disbelief. And it's one of the things, you know, that uh, that I find fascinating about that game, apart from the fact that what it's constantly doing is putting you at odds, your own morals at odds with the motivation of the character within the game or Oh, oh, yeah, and then, and oh, I know people that when when they get to the little twisting part are just like shocked and stop playing for like yep. days, you know, because the narrative is so strong, and then something happens and you're like, wait, what, what? I, I you know, they almost can't well, deal with, with it's a game that seen. I can't play through entirely because as a parent, I'm like, you know what, I can't, I just can't play this game. <laughs> <laughs> I got imagine escape. I want to talk to you um, real quick. I, I also want to ask you about the exhibit itself. So when some, somebody comes down to the uh, to the uh, Smithsonian American Art Museum, or or I suppose sees it at the other ten stops that it's going to make along the way when it when it leaves he, uh, DC, 
what are they going to what are they going to do what are they going to see and how is it different than um some of the other uh, exhibits of of different types that they've probably seen before so the exhibition's broken up into three distinct areas so the first area is this discovery area in here we talk about the three voices of video games um which we can go into um we talk about – oh, you'll hear from the designers themselves. So everyone, again, from Nolan Bushnell and Kelly Santiago and Jane Pinkard and uh, Jen McLean and Tommy Tallarico. I mean you'll just hear from a wide variety of people um, and developers and artists as they talk about what inspires them to make games, where they draw that inspiration from, what their philosophy is, what their hope is for video games, what brings them joy in creating games, why do they do the craft you know, in games that they do. Um, yeah, it's, nice. it's really fascinating to listen to, to some of them, to actually to all of them. Um, there's a really cool piece as well called Game Gamers, which is basically these high-res um, – cameras that we set up in front of people playing video games by themselves. And so you don't know what game they're playing, but you can watch their reaction to playing the game. You can <laughs> see how they're responding and people, you know, rock back and forth and people will uh, talk to the game and, you know, you see people's <laughs> eyes darting around everything else. It's actually a fascinating piece to watch. And there's a bunch of um, concept art and box art and, and things within the first section. Really, really cool stuff. Second era is the five playable games. Now, what these are, these are five games that I've chosen that represent something unique within their era that changed the way developers looked at creating games or and or changed the way the public perceived video games. So those five games in order are Pac-Man, the original arcade Pac-Man, mm-hmm. Super Mario Brothers, The Secret of Monkey Island, Mist mm. and Flower. Mm, okay. So some of those are kind of complicated games, though. I mean, you know, somebody who's never played video games before, they might be able to play Mist, but I don't know about Monkey Island. <laughs> you know, they might be a little lost. Right, so what we think? do is we the game, we've you know worked uh, to set it up where people can jump right into the game, and it, uh, there's some very simplified instructions and simplified controls. We're using trackballs, which are really cool, big, nice, like hap-control mm-hmm. trackballs. And um, mm-hmm. we make it very easy for people to get in and start understanding, oh, there's a dialogue tree. Oh, this I can actually affect what this guy's doing. Oh, if I press walk and then go over here, what's Guybrush Threepwood doing? Oh my goodness, you know. And so they start to do it and they start laughing out loud because the dialogue is genuinely funny. And we use it as an example of real one of the first real attempts at not, not attempts, but successes at humorous dialogue driving game plot. Have, has, have, have you seen people actually doing it, and is it having the effect that Absolutely. you thought it would? I mean, people are lining up, you know, five, six, seven deep to stand there and play this. Parents playing with their kids, grandparents with their grandkids. It's It's been overwhelmingly, uh, you know, validating from a design perspective because when you just see the expression on people's faces as they engage, you realize that's what it's all about. And it strikes such a very deep and resonant chord in us as humans, as people who grew up with technology and society, that uh, it just brings me a tremendous amount of joy to see how people are responding. Right, And then the third era is the 20 game systems. And so you can actually walk through this this entire piece and see, you know, experience all 20 of the consoles, all 80 games, and there's 60 to 90 second video clips that uh, play on monitors that are connected to these beautiful kiosks. And they give you 
some background into what the artist was thinking, what the designer was thinking when they created the game, what were the, the technological limitations that affected the artwork, um, what social commentary are in the games, what's the personal philosophy that's in these games. So you get to a sense of what these artists and designers were trying to convey through their games. That's really amazing. Now, I'm, I'm really excited. I, I think I'm most excited to see that third section. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, where everybody <laughs> walks in, just like you said with the book, you know, people flip to a certain page and go, oh, this is nice. This is nice. Oh, Zaxxon. Oh, my God. I remember <laughs> when I used to play this game and blah, 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 blah. And then they just, they'll talk for 20 minutes about their love for this game, which I think is absolutely fascinating that video games have the ability to do this and to draw this response out of us. More so than just about any other form of art or media. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, not 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 to bust on the uh, American Art Museum, but it, it's probably my least favorite museum to go into down there. One one of those. Um, but uh, so I think that's it's really cool that you're bringing people in. But it does also bring up a little bit of. Um, it's certainly different than what people have seen before, and I have seen I have seen some people, some art critics and so forth, that have, have basically basically turned their nose up and said, you know, the video games are not art and 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 so forth. And I'm sure you you've heard some of the arguments. So, I guess from from your perspective, you know, you know, do you do you believe that that video games and the art of making video games is is a valid art form that uh, deserves to be where it is. Well, you know, art can be a highly subjective term. And so I, you know, everyone has their own meter or temperature for what they believe art is to them. And so I have a definition that I use that's served me very well. And I believe that if you can view a piece of work, understand the author's intent, right, the artist's intent, but find a personal resonance with the medium, then art has been achieved. Now, I can tell you in spending a lot of time in museums and obviously a lot of time at this one particular museum, you know, I've stood <laughs> sure. in front of many great paintings, many great works. Um, I've traveled, you know, pretty extensively. I've seen a lot of works in, in museums overseas. Nothing has moved me in the same way that flower has moved me. Nothing has moved me in the same way that a game like Heavy Rain uh, was able to move me. So if I had to hold up that personal reflection to it, I would say that video games for me stand as the ultimate art form. Oh wow! Very, very good. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably the same way. I would probably, I would tend to agree with you. I can admire, you know, paintings Absolutely. And things like that. But, a- a- that's uh, I mean, exactly I- right. We can sit there and admire, and I can and understand the intent, but I have never been able to find the same level of connection, emotional and and humanizing connection, um, to those sorts of works as I have to a game like, say, Shadow of the Colossus. Oh my gosh, yes. And I, I think a lot of the people who are, and I mean, I, I'm thinking that a lot of the people who are the critics of uh, of video games as art probably haven't had a lot of the experiences. Have probably haven't sat down and played Heavy Rain, you know, to get to the twist and, and to see, you know, the kids getting kidnapped and to see the the anguish in the parents' faces and things like that. And I, just, I, I, I know, I, I almost, I almost hope that what happens is that your exhibit uh, convinces some of these people to, you know, to to try it and to to respect it more. And I. I think I think what you're doing is a really good thing for uh for oh, our well, thank you. No, so. you know, look, here here's the reality, right? Whether or not it changes those people's mind isn't the point. The point is that we are now able video games have now reached the point where they are worthy of being held up for examination as art. 
Now, whether or not you agree with it, I leave that to you because, again, it's different for everybody. But it is still worthy of examination as an art form for such a broad segment of society. And it's because the player, the reason I believe video games, you know, really do stand up as the ultimate art form is because it is in the playing of the game that, that it becomes art. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that there are these three voices to, to video games, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, three voices quite simply are the voice of the author or the designer, right? They have something they want to say, an experience they want to deliver to the world through this medium. The second voice is the game itself. It's the mechanics of the game and how it communicates to the player how you are to approach it. You know, what, is, what does the possibility space inside of the game look like? But it is in the playing of the game that we each bring our own experiences. We draw out of it the things that mean the most to us. And in that sense, every game is unique for the person that plays it. So you and I could go both, you know, sit through a movie and we'd leave and I'm like, John, did you just remember this part? And you go, yeah, I remember that part. You remember that part? And I go, yeah, I remember that part. But in playing a game like Shadow of the Colossus, I could say, oh, do you remember this part? And I spent all this time going this way. And you may turn around and say, oh, I remember that part, but I got to it through a very different way. And these are the things that I observed along the way. And so we take out of that experience a very personal one. Oh, and some some of the games, especially in the later games in your in your book, like uh, you had Fallout Three, was was uh, was was one of the one of the games that were done. That's a game that's such an open world that you and I could have both played it for eighty hours apiece and gotten to an end the end and had completely different experiences. The exactly time. right. <laughs> but here's the coolest part about all of that. So you and I had a completely different would have a completely different experience in the Fallout Three scenario, but the designer. And the authors of that experience, they started us where they wanted us to start, and they ended us where they intended us to end. So you Mm -hmm. still retain all of the authority of authorship in a video game, but you allow the player to explore that arc uh, laterally and create their own experience. There is no other form of, of media that allows that. It's not like you can, you and I could both sit down and watch a movie and start at a different place and end at a different place, right? And you can't do it with a book. You can't even do it with a painting, but you could do it with a video game. Very cool. And then there was a third one. You that said third the third voice, voice is the player. So the voice oh, the third, third voice, voice is, the player. is the player. So you ah, you're so clever, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been doing this well. So the uh, so the exhibit is called the Art of yes. Video Games and. And it is at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and it runs through September 30th, and then it goes on tour for a few years, and then Chris will eventually get his hardware. Right. I've, I've already, uh, you know, told my wife that I may have to go to eBay and, you know, get a Saturn back, <laughs> and you know, a couple other platforms that are sitting out there because uh, I don't know if I can if I can hang without that for a couple of years. I've got an itch to play some nights, and uh, I can't. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I can, I can imagine. Well, you know, you're taking one for the team, and it's definitely a good thing. So hopefully, um, maybe, who knows, maybe the exhibit will be um, a success uh, uh, to the point that um, you can do something else like this, maybe even on a, a grander scale moving forward. That would so. be that would be a wonderful thing to happen. But, you know, we're going to see how this one goes. And, uh, you know, it's like, quite honestly, it has just been an absolute honor to have worked on this exhibition. Um, you know, I've been able to 
the, the fact that I've been able to get to work on something that gives back to so many designers and artists and creators that have given so much to me and so much to the world has just been an absolute pleasure to work on. So, uh, you know, I thank everyone at the Smithsonian American Art Museum that worked on this project. They were tremendously uh, supportive through this whole thing. And uh, so far, you know, it seems that people really enjoy it. So, um, you know, I hope the listeners here will get a chance to go down to the exhibition and check it out and would love to hear the feedback. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, uh, you know, if, if you guys, uh, if you listeners out there, uh, go go check it out and then let us know. Our, our email address is ginlounge at gameindustry.com. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us how cool it was. Tell us where you got stuck, uh, you know, playing for 20, 30 minutes and watching your favorite game. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, a special thanks to Chris. Chris, really appreciate it. Uh, maybe maybe I'll see you down there at the uh, exhibit uh, sometime that, that soon. That would be fantastic, John. And, you know, and for people that can't get out there, you know, the book stands as a really good opportunity to to explore in further depth, you know, the materials from the exhibition. And we were able to expand on them in the book that in where we couldn't at the exhibition. So, uh, you know, check it out. And again, John, thanks for having me on. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate it. Oh yeah, absolutely. The uh, actually, uh, our uh, our book reviewer is taking a look at the book right now. But I can tell you from the reaction of the staff over the past week that it's been here in the office, it's uh, <laughs> it's going to get a very good review. It's a very good looking book. It's very awesome, and the developer insights. Well, well great. Put together. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, everybody. We'll see you uh, either down at the uh, Smithsonian American Art Museum or next week right here at the Lounge.